Doug Wilson nearly died of a brain tumour, went on to run seven marathons in seven days on seven different continents. Wilson is not just a marathon runner, he's a remarkable tale of success against the odds. After a 13-hour operation, he left hospital in a wheelchair, having lost the balance function in his right side. Told he may not walk again for 18 months, he ran an ultra-marathon within six, putting his remarkable recovery down to a new plant-based diet, yoga and the power of the mind. Hello and welcome to Narratively Speaking, the podcast that explores the power of story in all its forms, its role in society, and how it helps to shape the ideas we think we believe in. I'm your work in progress host, Harv, and today we have a very special guest with us with a very special story. Uh, Doug Wilson is an international marathon runner, kundalini yoga practitioner, brain tumor survivor, and now author of the book, Kundalini Running. He has overcome substance abuse and severe health issues to achieve feats of physical fitness that most of us, especially me, can barely imagine. G'day, Doug. Welcome to the podcast. G'day. Thanks for having me. I don't know how much you know about the podcast. I just wanted to give you a little bit of background about what we talk about. We sort of just cover the topic of story from the perspective of how it affects us, how it shapes our mind and our consciousness. But one, one thing I've found through this exploration is that story can affect us in ways that can be surprising. And you've got one hell of a story. Let me just start there. Um, so congratulations on having the courage and determination to share your story. I was wondering actually, which is harder, actually just writing the book or training to compete in a North Pole marathon while recovering from brain tumor surgery? Yep, uh, absolutely. So from everything that I've I've done in my life, I would say writing the, the books to this date has been one of the most challenging things that I've ever had to do. Mm. And it, for me, I've come from a background of, of, of not being a writer um, and actually struggling with things like dyslexia and mm. I was never good at English at school. So writing a book was the last thing on my mind and I had to lock myself away in my room for three years and mm. I did nothing. I, you know, I kept up with my yoga and my running and stuff like that. Um, but I literally did nothing else for those three years. I didn't have a job. Uh, I, I just sat there and uh, it was uh, challenging in, in the sense of actually having to sit down and, and write and learn how to actually structure a story and mm. you know, give it a, a start and a point and an ending and, and, and all that sort of stuff. But it was also very hard to sit there and relive a lot of those memories day in and day out, actually I'll just bet. sit there and and really go into the depths of uh, what I went through and and how it affected me and and what I wanted to do ultimately with that story, which was uh, uh, try and help. Like what you were, it's a very good introduction. Is we do share those stories. I shared mine personally because um, I know what it's like to suffer on a really deep level, mm. and I think anything we can do to share our experiences and try to prevent other people from suffering the similar sort of experience or similar sort of fates that we, you know, that somebody that's been through something and gotten over it, you know, that natural compassionate way of being human, we want to prevent other people from, you know, sort of living our mistakes or anything like that. So that was my driving force to, to really sitting down and, 
and getting the book done. Um, mm. Yeah, because I think it's a beautiful tool to be able to share um, ourselves like that. Absolutely. And, and in general, I find most people don't and not so much not so much because they can't or they're unwilling or they don't want to put in the work. I think people don't understand how valuable their stories really are yep. to others. Yeah. So as I say, you know, kudos, kudos to you for that. This is your first book, right? This is Yeah, it's my first time um, writing, but it's definitely, as you were saying, that there was a lot of depth to that story. And I've definitely read it with the intention of that being part one of two. So I, mm. I think you've picked up on it well that you can see that a lot of that stuff it was I wanted because my life was very much that fast paced and I was always a person going out trying to do things and, and, ha and got a lot of experience with life. Um, I did write it in a way where I wanted to capture that, where mm. it would be that dragging people into just living that, you know, m like that momentum that I was on, that crazy sort of extreme life that I lived. It's quite a roller coaster the way it's portrayed. In yeah, the but book, th yeah. That's, that's really how it was though. Like yeah. it, it's, um, and there's even stuff that I, I, I took out of it because I, my, I'm, one of those people that people would always told me I should write a book and mm. all this sort of stuff. Um, so there's a lot that I, I left out of the book as well. So there's definitely a part two in the works um, okay. uh, that will go into a bit more into the depths of, of the story that's already there, but also now coming out of that and, and moving on to the next thing, which I think is going to be another story in itself. It's also quite um, self-reflective and philosophical. Um, which is interesting because you cover the events, but you also provide a constant sort of running narrative of your state of mind. And you even, uh, in, in a way, you self-diagnose your thoughts from the past a lot, which is really interesting to read um, because it kind of gives an elucidation on your own consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it shows that Obviously, your understanding now of the events that have happened to you in the past have changed a lot. Is that right? Yeah, 100%. And um, that's really nice to hear that that, that's, that, that got picked up on in, in the story mm. because and, and my belief of why, that ha why it was so much that way is because I got very much into yoga and meditation while I was writing the story. So I was having that awareness mm. coming to me and I was basically unraveling um, my life up until that point of writing the book and, and developing that understanding, like why did I make certain choices and, mm. and all of those sort of things. So I was able to um, keep going deeper and deeper into understanding myself mm. and, and my story through, through that process of just sitting down and, and paying attention to my, to my thoughts. So, mm. um, and, and, that's, and that is the act of meditation in itself is, nothing more than developing a better understanding of, of who we are and where we've come from and where we're going. That's, that's the essence of meditation. Yeah. I, I keep coming across meditation. It's not something I actively do at all. Uh, I've never done yoga. I don't know if you can tell, but that would be quite a challenge for me in the physical state that I'm in. Um, but uh, yeah, I keep getting meditation. It comes across my desk, so to speak, in life as something that's uh, a good way to um, center your thoughts and, and understand yourself and focus and become productive, which are all goals that I have. Um, but at the same time, I still feel a, a little silly about it. There's, there's a part of me that uh, just doesn't like to participate in other people's ritual in a way. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't like having things prescribed, so I try and work out ways to do things myself a lot. Um, and maybe that cuts me off to a lot of you know, learning. So yeah, um, just to, I think a lot of 
problems people have with things like yoga and meditation nowadays is they do have those spiritual connotations attached mm. to them. And as soon as that comes up in any framework, that's like, oh, you're doing this because you're trying to reach enlightenment or a higher state of being or all this mm. sort of stuff in it. And it f feels like a bit religion-y or something of that nature. Mm. People very much um, are quick, quick, quick to step away from it. And that's, again, one of the things that uh, I tried to tell in my story that it, it shouldn't be that way mm. um, because it, it shouldn't have any ideology attached behind it or like you should be doing this for some sort of end goal. It's just a practice for, for the self. And uh, the, you I know, the, the terminology that I always hear, though, that, that turns me off it is people say, it works. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, you have an end goal if it works. What is, the, you know, like if you say something works, then you're saying that there's an end goal mm -hmm. and that this is a means to an end. And then it can't be inherently spiritual because if it was, I feel like you would just do it for the sake of it, for the process or something. Or like if you've got a goal to become enlightened or spiritual ascension, you know, these types of things that you get in, in the, the, um, the new world religion type ideas, mm -hmm. you know, the spirit science type stuff that you see a lot of, yep. um, all that stuff kind of turns me off because at the end of the day, it's just saying there's a heaven, you know, there's a, a better form of being and you're trying to achieve that. So this doesn't matter. Mm. And that's the thing that bothers me the most yep. saying this doesn't matter. I think it does. I couldn't agree with you more. I think, mm. I think a lot of that whole pseudo science um, spiritual kind of modern spiritual stuff is 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 a misinterpretation of of how it was originally formed. If yeah. that makes sense, I agree. Um, it has to be. Yeah, and I and I think, or even a hijacking yeah, of the original. Yeah, thoughts. yeah, I, completely. And all we're doing now with all these things, and I, I I would even put yoga and meditation into this into this frame of thinking, is that we're just creating modern day religions, mm. and um, they are losing the mechanical aspects. So when I when I try to teach yoga and meditation. I do it strictly from a mechanical point of view. So right. so it's 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 about working the mind. So I don't look at it as as a spiritual endeavor because everybody's on a spiritual path. There's mm. no special thing about it. We're all we're all on it. We're all on our own position. Right? Yeah. So I look at meditation as strictly as a mental it's like mental exercise. Mm. So just like we work the physical body and we stimulate it, we can stimulate it in any number of ways. The mind's so much more multifaceted mm. that, um, and and meditation again, it's not just a singular thing. There's thousands of different ways to do meditation, um, and just the same way that we would prescribe like different types of physical activity for people, whether they're trying to rehabilitate from an in injury, you're trying they're trying to gain better athletic performance, or whatever, you would do different types of physical activity. Yeah, just sure. like with meditation, there's different types of mental activity to do to bring out the effectiveness of what it does so again i mm. would i would say anything as soon as you do prescribe saying that there's an end goal and you do this for that end mm. yeah you're right then it's kind of it's it just, kind of bullshit yeah it throws off my bullshit detector i yeah. start becoming skeptical i yep. cross my arms and i'm like okay well, yeah, <laughs> what are you selling me and i would agree i you would know. i would and i would say to, to to always question those sort of things and to not buy into it, I, and I always say to people as well, 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 try it for yourself um, mm. for whatever period of time, and if it doesn't work, do something else. And you cover that very well in the book as well. You know, you you, you do approach it from a scientific perspective, and you talk about things like um, applying pressure to the organs through certain exercises. Um, you talk about the chakras being linked to glands in the body. 
Actually, talk about that a little bit because um, that's a good way. People, when they hear the word chakras, are going to think, you know, Indian guru, weirdo stuff, you know, some kind of glowing yeah, so, purple light. But <clears throat> Yeah, so it's very tangible, I think, um, the chakra system. So when people were discovering these methodologies, they didn't ha have what we have now in terms of like the instruments that can detect things or mm. they didn't have the understanding about how, you know, it's developed and how we understand how nature works and things like this. It's part of evolution. So they were describing things that they were experiencing. So it's, it's stuff that definitely happens in the body. So if you get into a certain state, um, you can tune into things, but all the chakras are talking about, are if we think about our central nervous system, so the neurons in the gray matter of our brain extends all the way through our central nervous system. Those sure. all act off the same processes, the same type of bio material. Mm. Um, that, so anywhere where there's a point where there's like a lot of nerve cells coalescing, so where they're feeding into the organs, um, those are kind of points where you have a higher rate of flow of energy. So just like sure. when a, um, an electric current flows through a wire, it creates a magnetic field. Mm. Uh, in the same way, the way that the, you know, the electrical charge running through the central nervous system, when it gets to those points, it creates like spheres of energy that are a little bit more technical than just your standard sort of electrons flowing along a wire. There's, there's more happening in the body for sure. Um, is but, it electromagnetic or yeah, are you talking in, in, in about an sense, energy that's not measurable at no, this no, point no, in I, science? I, I would say it's electromagnetic. So it's the same sort of thing. You just have energy yeah. flowing along a wire coalescing at a point creating like a sphere of energy basically so that's those those seven main points that you see in in the, those the chakras, in those yeah. chakra pictures those kind of like and it's always reflected um they're basically like a a reference to uh the mechanics of consciousness so right. i always like to describe Do you think consciousness has a mechanical side then because this is a huge topic that I keep coming back to. Yep. The more I talk about story and how it affects us, I'm thinking, well, what is it affecting? The self, the consciousness. And then you have to say, what is consciousness? And I don't, I, I can't I get think, an answer, a clear I, answer on it. I think human con consciousness is definitely mechanical. Like mm. the human experience of consciousness is just like the human experience of the physical nature. It's all, it's all part of it, right? So, yeah, so it that's, has to be something to do with the whole creating complexity. Yep. And then, but the, doesn't that make it an illusion? And if you call it an illusion, doesn't that upset people? I can tell you it does. <laughs> well, for me, for yeah. me, for me, life's not an illusion. No, it's, it's, it's the not only an illusion. it's the only no. thing. It's the only thing I know, and and I, and I, I get that a lot. In and again, that modern sort of pseudo sciencey world is is mm. you get a lot of people saying like, ignore reality. It's it's just an illusion, or you know, you know, this, yeah. this sort of and that drives we're me, living in a simulation. That, that drives me crazy. Perception is holographic. Yeah, that, mm. that drives me crazy, that sort of stuff. That, that actually has a physical uh, explanation as well, though, that that worldview. And I've, I've looked into that a little bit. I was actually just watching a video on it before you arrived. Mm -hmm. And the, the basic concept is that the brain takes sensory inputs that are flawed and it corrects them. Mm -hmm. So what you think you're seeing isn't directly related to... Uh, what your eyes are perceiving. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a layer of your brain that interprets it yeah. and recreates a 3D holographic image in it uh, of what your world looks but, like. But that is ultimately what we see, though. Yeah, I know. That's, that's, I, it's that's, it's one of those things, isn't it? So it's, we can break it down with science and say, oh yeah, the eyes flipping the images in the 
brain, you know, all these sorts of things. Yeah. But it, but at the end of the day, what what do we experience? So science can explain things kind of that are mathematically deduced or that they've broken the, the sum of all the parts down, mm. if that makes sense. But the way I look at it is always like, what's the experience? Yeah. What, what, is, what is ultimately the experience? I, I think philosophically it's dangerous to reduce the importance of the moment, the now, the self, the consciousness. But at the same time, I'm really curious about mm. you know the mechanisms of it, uh, the idea that it's an illusion because it it upsets people. I talk to people, friends of mine or whatever, about these sort of philosophical topics, and I say, no, there's no magical cloud of of um, consciousness. You know, it's it's just a mechanism in the brain. It's a function of memory and perception and complexity, and you think it's special because you can't understand it. How can something understand its own level of complexity? It's impossible. So that mechanism creates this illusion of, I am a person, I am a consciousness, I am a spirit, and I'll live on after my body is dead. But at the end of the day, I think all of that stuff is the same thing, that your body, the electrical signals in your body and your brain and everything just makes up this consciousness. And then people get upset at the concept because they're like, well, you're telling me I'm not real or something like that. And I'm not. Mm. Th that's just as valid an experience as anything else. I don't see any reason to think that that's a lesser thing than being like a ghost that's going to live on after you die. I mean, maybe the idea of death is bad, but your memory lives on and that's still an entity that survives. So. Where, yeah. where do you fall on the consciousness thing? I'm, I'm well, I, I look at consciousness strictly as, as a thing of, of awareness. Mm. So how aware of something can, can I become or can we be? Mm. So I don't, I don't think that it's something that you ever want to like put down to, to one, it being one thing because it's because of the simple fact that it's different for everybody. So mm. that's what creates all problems or wars. It all stems from that thing mm. of trying to explain what life is and what life's about so the way i always look at it is what am i aware of and and, and fundamentally what do i know to be true sure so if i don't know and and from my own experiences of being on the brink of death and even getting to those points like you know i've done a lot of psychedelic drugs and and had these experiences of, of near death of, of near death um and to me i i could have easily sat down and develop that idea of like, oh, I've seen this light and I've been in this tunnel and I've done this and therefore- Yeah, you don't mention any of that stuff. Therefore, I know for that reason because I didn't want to come back and, and say that I know because especially when it comes to something like death, I've been there, I've been close and I've crossed over to a point that gave me a different experience and a different perception of reality. Yeah. Yet I came back here and I'm still me. Mm. So- like I can't even call that experience death, if that makes sense, you know. Like, well, I mean, I, I think technically it is medically right, but not, uh, not yeah, a spiritual death. Yeah. Yeah. So to to the point that like I you could, I could have conjured up all sorts of things in my mind about that and tried to convince people, you know, oh, I know what it's like and all this sort of stuff. But I, I just don't think that that helps anybody. Mm. Um, I think we're here to live the experience of of being human and. I think we like we've forgotten a lot of that. Like that gets lost in a lot of Is this. It, modern yeah, it's it's funny how when you discover things scientifically or you come to revelations in your life, you know that you didn't know when you were a teenager. How often you can go back to historical, you know, old ancient civilizations and find they had a concept that basically said the same thing. Same chakras thing. is a good example of that. Yeah. So um, 
yeah, this is the thing. It just always it always points back to an interpretation mm. of the same thing. So it's all it's all fundamentally running off the same backbone. Mm. Uh, we just have different ways of interpreting it. And again, that's where story comes into a, a bit of it as well, like sharing story, sharing mm. experience, and then people diluting stories over a period of time and all that sort of stuff. So that's why, again, I just keep coming back to that point. Like I'd never take anything. Like I, I'm happy to listen to people's stories and 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 hear people's ideas and take that onto my own framework of thinking but i always come back to that that knowing of like if, if i haven't experienced something for myself then i just don't know yeah i'm the same and I, I i find a lot of people demand that you accept things that they've experienced yeah. and and you know that like i've got a friend who says that he saw the ghost of his mother after she passed and i actually had an experience recently a, a woman at work told me that her father passed away and then she started seeing an eagle every day in the sky and it was like following her. And it's a beautiful story and I love it. And I would never want to take that story away from her because it's, it's wonderful that she feels she's got that connection to her father. who She's obviously still grieving for this was only December. So, yep. um, but at the same time, I don't want to say, I know for sure that someone's, can go into the body of an eagle and follow around their family from before. How, how would we know? It's yeah, and and it's you know it's it's a bit of a cartoonish concept, and mm. I think you'd have to experience it to recognize the complexity of that. Yeah, yeah. So from all I can say to add to that is like from my own experience, because I can just compare myself to the way that I was before my experiences of getting sick and and going through similar like these sort of things. That again, when I wrote in the book, I kept a lot of it out of it because I didn't want to create that concept of like oh what a load of shit this story is but having had these kind of experiences of just perceiving a different kind of or a diff different part of reality mm. um i would have been very close off to you know hearing other people's stories like that because mm. you know what you know what i mean and now but now the way i look at it is because we live such different lives physically you know, there, there are other things that I believe happen. We know that there's mental en energy, emotional energy. We know that these, mm. these kind of experiences. So hearing that story about the, the eagle, again, I can't say one way or the other, but it doesn't shock me as much hearing stuff like that nowadays. It doesn't shock me, no. It's, yeah. And as I say, I, I've learned through my life that skepticism and cynicism are pretty ugly most of the time, especially to someone who's just lost their father and is grieving. Mm. So the last thing I would do, is say anything other than that's a beautiful story. Yeah, but I have to process it internally as well. Yeah, I well, keep it to myself. Yeah, you have but, to compare yeah. it to what you've experienced, and, and mm. yeah, it's totally. The, there's normal. one point in the book where I found uh, you did talk about something fairly mystical without really explaining it. Although I think you were attempting to explain it, but I'm not sure if I got it. And that was the bit when you met Danny, and he was uh, doing some kind of. Um, energy healing was it energy healing yeah, is that the term it was yeah. energy healing yep and and you talked about you basically just closed your eyes he did something you don't say what he was doing and you felt energy moving through your body a surge of energy and mm -hmm. replenishment and things like that and I found that because it's quite early that's well, fairly early in the book was it about midpoint or a bit before the midpoint just as, yeah. I found that that was the moment where I started to go oh no where are we going with this <laughs> you know so. Can you explain a little bit more about that particular moment? Because yep. the rest of the book, I've got no real issue with. You sort of avoid having that skepticism, triggering that skepticism in me. But that one moment, I was like, 
no, I don't know what's happening here. I've never experienced anything like that. Yeah. And, and it's a great thing to touch on. And, and again, that's why I didn't go into a lot of that stuff in mm. depth. I could, I could have wrote a book on that experience in itself um, because it was so profound and so out there. Mm. And I was exactly the same. I came from corp ranking world, um, very scientific in nature, worked with computer sciences and things like this. So very mm. analytical and wanting to understand how things work mechanically and into physics and um, sciences and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I was always on the the same trip of if you can't explain it and show me things to back it up, then I don't believe in it. And so when it came to things like energy healing, so for anybody listening who's not aware of this stuff, you might have heard of things like Reiki before. Yes, it's like the, the most, which they talk, it's related to the way moving energy in the chakras and all yeah. this sort of stuff with Reiki. So that's the commonly most commonly known form of energy healing. Yeah. And I'd, I'd never heard of any of this stuff myself. And I'd just, you know, come back from um, battling a brain tumor and going through all my recovery and all this sort of stuff and ended up back in London and was kind of like just start, starting to feel like I was opening up to that sense of I really don't know what I'm doing mm. in, in life and how to take care of myself. And the moment that I kind of like opened up to that, just that little different way of thinking of always thinking, oh, I know what's up. I know what's going on to just yeah. being like, hmm, maybe I don't know what's going on. Uh, it was very quickly these new things started coming to me. And I was always also the, the person that was, uh, if anything came into my life that didn't kind of mesh with my current way of being, I was very quick to dismiss and, yeah. and, and get away from me sort of thing. That's cognitive dissonance, right? If, if it doesn't fit your worldview, yeah. Yeah, it, uh, it threatens it. Exactly. Mm. Um, but I was reached this point where I was almost in a, in a, in a sense desperate and, and wanting, wanting help, but still not being able to kind of consciously realize that. And so it's kind of like my pathway to these kind of things. Um, that we're talking about meditation, yoga, and all this sort of stuff. Um, mm. Yeah, and I just ended up meeting this guy, and he was, you know, talking about this this energy healing stuff. And my my first reaction was very skeptical, and you know, I've never heard of anything like that before. This just seems weird. But I decided to give it a go to try something different, and I went for this energy healing session. And again, we sat down, and the guy he was my age. This we were about 30 um, and he was, you know, this like good looking guy, looked really strong and didn't look like a tripped out weirdo that was, you know, mm. but he was talking about like divine energy and divinity and, and um, asking me like all these kind of quite profound questions and, and things that I'd never really thought of. And the word divine is intrinsically a religious concept, right? Exactly. It's, it's of God, I believe, or whatever that. Exactly. And that, yeah. that so, so again, my skepticism was sparked straight away and, he, when we were talking and we we're having our first meeting, I think he could tell that I was just kind of sitting there going, oh yeah, what a load of shit. <laughs> and, and then he kind of just went, well, lay down on this table. And he sat behind me and he's put his uh, hand on the back of my head. Now, the first weird thing that happened, and I don't know if this was just coincidental or like he had some sort, sort of level of intuition with it, but he used his right hand and I, I have a big surgical like where they did my brain surgery there's a big horseshoe where it goes, right? thing where they and his fingers literally went around the spot like it was mm. just, it was it was quite insane it was almost and he had no way to know that that was no because my hair had was, grown back and, yeah. and it was still quite sensitive there so my first reaction was kind of like well one that triggered physical pain because yeah. it was still quite sensitive that that part of my body and then i was kind of like well that's very precise where he's put his hand that was weird but then I was like laying there, nothing really happened for the first few minutes and he's just sitting behind me and I could hear him breathing and 
I'm laying there thinking, oh, you know, why have I paid 60 quid to like lay here on this table? And again, skeptical mind is going like, what are you doing, Doug? Like get out of here sort of thing. Mm. And then I kind of like another voice or sense of myself kind of went, well, you're here, I may as well just kind of go for it. And the moment that again, that I sort of relaxed and um, like let myself like go into the experience, I started feeling my these waves through my body, like energy moving in myself in a very different way to normal. Mm. And it was, it kind of brought me more into myself. So it took me out of my kind of frantic way because I've got a very busy mind and took me out of my frantic way of thinking and brought me into my body or in, more into a more complete experience. Mm. And then it was just like these, these waves, like just rolling through me. And it, mm. very, it did, it felt very cleansing. And this session went for, for 90 minutes, but it just didn't seem like that amount of time. And, but during that session, it was like um, systems in my body were kind of like coming back online. That's, again, these things are hard to explain because yeah. they're, not, they're not so physical of, of experience, but all this information was like coming to me consciously. And I was getting this sense of like the, the questions that I'd asked a lot of myself throughout my life. It's mm. kind of like little answers were starting to come. Mm. And one of the biggest things that happened to me in that experience is um, that like once those sort of rolling waves, when I was very in tune with what was happening, like kind of how my, my being was feeling, not so much how my body was feeling. Sure. And I was in this really deep experiences of being. And during that, this like epic split between myself kind of happened. It felt like part of me went one way and part of me went another way. And again, that intuitive like awareness or information came to me just saying like, you're extremely unbalanced, which I was. Um, and I lived this really up and down life. And it was just telling me, you need to sort that out or you're going to end up back, you know, where you were sick and depressed and, and you know, mm. not having a great experience with life. But given uh, your history up to that point as written in the book, that's not really a major revelation, is it? I mean, you were well, doing some pretty heavy drugs and, you know. All yeah, that sort yeah. Of stuff. But I was just doing, the drugs were more of a, a form of just escaping my own inner turmoil um, that I wasn't. Actually, out of interest, you said just before that you have a busy mind. And I know uh, in, in the book, you, you sort of speak about why you were attracted to drugs and so on. And you kind of blame yourself and uh, you, you kind of say, um, I don't know how to express it exactly. But you kind of say um, that it was, you know, some kind of weakness of yours or, or something like that. And I, I don't know if I necessarily buy that because uh, I know, like, I've had periods of time, quite long periods of time, where I've uh, regularly had copious amounts of alcohol. I haven't so much got into the drugs, but definitely the alcohol. Um, and I don't feel like I'm attracted to it because I'm trying to escape anything in particular, other than the busyness of my mind. I find I, I just can't uh, stop. I can't stop, but alcohol kills it. And which is weird because my consciousness is what I am. And I lose that when I'm drinking. And you would think that would be scary, but it's not. It's kind of comforting, becoming more like a happy you know, puppy, uh, you know, on a sunny porch or something, you don't really care about all the other compl complicated stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's part of it that you have a busy mind? Yeah. Uh, there was always a sense of wanting, to, like I was, I was the same whenever I was high or, or drunk or whatever, that mm. I just wouldn't feel so tormented by my thoughts more mm. than anything. It's not so much the business of my mind because even 
now I can use the busyness of my mind to do things like be oh, more, yeah. be more productive with it. So mm. it was more just like the way that those thoughts were configured mm. and the way that that would kind of haunt me and torment me. I always found that when I was drunk or high, I would, wouldn't be thinking about the things that would generally bother me. Right. So that's what was my, uh, I don't think I, I consciously, I didn't consciously go after that. It was more of a subconscious thing. It's interesting. Yeah. I've got a friend who's, um, manic depressive and uh, obsessive compulsive and probably a lot of other uh, diagnosis. <laughs> um, I, I hope he wouldn't. He does listen to this. So I, I'll try and be kind to him. Um, but he's undergoing a therapy at the moment mm. um, that was prescribed by the VA, the, um, the military hospital, uh, which I don't know exactly, but the way he described it, it's basically um, electromagnetic pulses in his brain. And he said, uh, you know, they put this weird sort of device on his head and it feels like a woodpecker just pecking on the side of his head repeatedly for however long it lasts, 15, 20 minutes. Um, and he says it's really helping. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's because he's been trying to get rid of all the alcohol. He used to be able to drink like nothing I've ever seen. Um, and he's, he's cut all of that out of his life and all he's left with is his you know, racing thoughts. And I, I've put it to him, well, maybe you're just a genius. <laughs> maybe you're just, you know, um, having trouble focusing mm. the energy of your thoughts, but uh, you're actually hyper-intelligent as opposed, maybe it's a superpower in a sense, you know, like, um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm really interested because his experience is very similar to mine, although way more extreme. I, I don't find myself becoming non-functional because I think I'm not that much of a genius <laughs> apparently, but he seems to be. So yeah, that's why I just thought maybe that that could be something to think about. I don't know. Yeah. So anything I think with people struggling with their own thoughts is it, again, it just comes down to a level of focus because mm. it is, it's, a, it's an energy mm. and those, they can be trained and, um, but again, the minds, whenever it's anything to do with the mind, it's not easy because it's so, mm. it's so, it, it can move so easily. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's so, and this is where we go back to a bit of meditation with things like this, those sort of things you can sit down and you can actually make things worse because you can just sit down and then be really focused on the mind and, and, and it attacks itself more. Yeah. So that's where, um, those things, it's quite interesting saying that he's having like electrotherapy on his brain mm. or whatever. So they're it's trying a new to therapy. Apparently. So they're trying to train, change the behavior of the brain waves. Yes. Which would uh, uh, forcibly. Yeah. Which, <laughs> I don't know the science behind it, so I don't want to comment on it, but um, it's, that's effectively what you're trying to do with yoga and meditation, but over a long period of time. And doing it internally, sort of by yeah. massaging as opposed to yeah. shocking. It's To me, it, like, it's not obviously not painful like electrotherapy, but it yeah. must be in the same basket. Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's just forcing it more. So yeah. whether that can have a long-lasting effect, I don't know. Again, I don't know the science behind it, but when we do it in yoga and meditation, I write about one of the techniques that I used in my book where I sat down and I massaged, massaged um, the temporal lobes of my brain. Yeah. I did this thing with That's this right, yeah. mantra. And um, I did it for a very long period of time. And, and for me, it worked. Yeah. Um, so I look at that kind of stuff is maybe you, you're almost like short cutting those processes. And if it works for somebody, it works for somebody. But if it also just only creates a temporary fix, and then those, you know, subconsciously rooted things that trigger thoughts come back and they haven't been worked on, then you're ultimately just going to have that problem again, maybe six, 12 months down the line or however long. Mm. Uh, I think to, to initiate real change to the, to the thoughts and, and our well-being with our mind and stuff like that, it's a very, very long process and it requires like daily commitment and all that sort of stuff. 
So in, in a sense, one of the things, I don't want to say it's missing from the book necessarily. It's probably not. But one of the things I think wasn't completely clear to me is um, I've been reading Russell Brand's book, Recovery. I don't know if you're aware of Russell Brand or his book. Yep. Um, but because of my attraction to alcohol, I, I'd like to sort of you know get an understanding of addiction. I'm not sure if I, I have a problem or not really. I probably do, but I don't really know. But I would like to read the book just to understand it better. And he says, all addiction comes from pain, which I think is an interesting concept, but I'm not sure if I really buy into it. I don't know what my pain is that makes me addictive. And in, in your book, I don't think you really identify a pain that causes your addiction either. Or do you, and I've missed it? I yeah, I try to. Um, so for me, um, it, it stemmed back to my childhood and my relationship with my dad. Okay. So I think mine was emotional pain. So mm. a bit of a, emotional neglect and um, not to say that my father was necessarily like a terrible human being or a bad person, but it, we were definitely disconnected from each other. And that left that gap um, for me of always just lacking a little bit of self-worth. And that was from, you know, I always like I was, that's what ultimately led me to being trying to be a high achiever and all this mm. sort of thing I was always trying to fill that gap in that way. Um, but I always felt quite neglected. Again, it was a sub subconscious thing. I, I was never aware of it until I started doing yoga and meditation. So you think that's enough? It was for me. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, I've obviously everybody has. It doesn't matter how loving a parent is; they're yeah. always going to admit giving you something that you okay. need emotionally. Yeah. Right? So to clarify, to to clarify, I don't think it was the sole thing, but I think it was the root of mm. of that. So the, it creates. For me, it created that like sense of dis a little bit of distrust with the world. So mm. I was very, you know, my dad in a way, he picked on me a lot and it was always, yeah, I do go into it a little bit in the book. And that for me, it was just the foundation for that. Mm. And uh, that just meant that as I went along and had, you know, like, you know, you go along through your lives and you have, you have these kind of moments where, you know, you maybe get your heart broken or you get embarrassed by something or, you mm. know, these sort of things. And it's, it's not that it's ever one necessarily one specific thing. Um, but for me, it was like these things that add up over time and it's this plus this plus this leads. And it's just, I just kept stacking things to try and avoid that, like that root of emotional pain um, mm. and experience. Like I hated anything to do with experience emotion because again, stemming back to that childhood thing, I was always told never show emotion. Mm. so never show that you're upset or that you're you know because it's a sign of weakness so mm. to, to cry or anything like that for a guy to cry it's a sign of weakness so mm. i spent all my life trying to be this tough can't show weakness can't mm. show emotion and that's inherently wrong because we're part of our being is 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 emotional we are absolutely we are emotional beings we, and that's a really key moment in the book too where you you decide basically to give up and break down and have a bit of a cry and, and let go of all of that conditioning. Yep. And I really related to that as well. You know, I, I remember I wrote a story when my grandfather died and it was all about how I didn't cry about it. That was the whole story, you know, and this is when I was like, I don't know, 14 or 15, I guess. But um, yeah, it's really interesting. I think the younger you are, and we've done whole episodes on this, but the younger you are when you suffer a trauma, the more significant it is to the formation of your personality and behavior. So things that happen in the womb even yep. can be formative, you know? So 
I in in the episode where we talked about this, I I tried to relate when I was younger, and we'd sit around the dinner table, and my entire family were all very loud, and um, they would cut me off whenever I tried to say anything about a topic. Right, so I I used to just sit there in silence. Basically, I gave up after a while, and I think that sort of taught me. Um, that my opinion wasn't valuable. And then I wondered, is that why I do a podcast? It's no one to cut me off. Well, not there is today, but you'd be very good. <laughs> but yeah, generally, do I just want to put out all those thoughts that didn't seem valued back when I was a kid around the dinner table? Is that what it is? And it's interesting. It's definitely formative stuff. And I also thought about uh, something like a practice like circumcision that happens when you're very, very young whether that can cause a kind of detachment and dissociation in adults and whether that kind of practice might be significant. Yeah, it's a physical trauma to the body. Pretty bad one, I would imagine, too. Yeah, 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 yeah 100%. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's it's everything that happens to us. And from a yogic perspective, we look at it at, at pain on all levels or you know, this experience of, of pain happens on all level of our being but for a reason because it kind of protects us. Yeah. So we, we need it in a sense, but when, when it – gets too much and it becomes overwhelming and it can trap us within ourselves that's effectively what can happen if we experience too much trauma and we're not taught how to deal with it ultimately it will just lead to our demise and we'll just live in these like over protective over sheltered experiences of life and then not being Mm. you know open to things um and again that was kind of what happened to me and are you aware of things like um dissociative identity disorder and uh, like mk ultra experiments that happen in the 50s in the US. No. It's really interesting stuff and it's it's so out there. Uh, I hope it doesn't make me sound crazy. <laughs> but um, basically there were these experiments into mind control, the idea being they wanted to be able to create uh, a methodology where they could create a, a Manchurian candidate assassin basically for the military. So they started funding all of these weird experiments and there were hundreds of them hundreds of these programs all looking at different aspects of how the mind can be controlled externally. You know, so you're talking about controlling your own mind internally. This was looking at how do you control a population's mind, at least one person, but ideally everyone altogether, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And it was, it was probably quite innocent at the time. They thought the Russians were doing it. They thought the, the Germans were doing it in, in the world war, which they were, they had some, you know, some of the experiments from, from uh, the Nazis came across and became the formation of all of this. And what they found is that if, uh, if enough trauma is applied young enough, it creates dissociative identity disorder, which is this multiple personality idea. And you'll see, uh, you know, movies like Split and uh, Glass. I don't know if you're a movie buff, but that are in the cinemas at the moment that deal with uh, characters with dissociative identity disorder. And it's, it basically you're creating personas within the brain that protect a core persona, which is the one that suffered the trauma so that you don't actually have to deal with it. And it's an insane idea, but we know that the disorder does exist. And well, actually we don't, there's this skeptics about that as well. Um, but I, I think of it in terms of if, if you're working on designing a server farm, right? The mode that your brain gets into, in a sense, is a compartmentalized personality. It has a unique focus and a skill set, and you can break out of it and switch back to your social personality or your um, 
intelligent personality or your work personality, but we do kind of have multiple personalities. It's very true because we, we tend to look at the mind as like one sort of thing, mm. it's just like one aspect of ourselves, but the mind in itself from this me going into another yogi perspective, but it's, mm. it's multifaceted. It's made up of many different components. So just like you were saying, you have kind of like these different personalities. You do have these bif- different parts of the, the mind that all mm. relate to each other. And from my own perspective, it's, it's so easy to create those different types of personalities. And they always come up that you, you act differently around different types of people. Yes, that's you know, right. All these sorts of things. So we definitely do create these personas. And again, it's, I think it's so we don't end up being like um, ostracized from any one part of the communities that we have to kind of go around. So from myself, I was always a very different person at work to the way that I was outside of work. You I know, think everybody is. Yeah, you, you, yeah. These, these, you, you create this, like you, it's like work Doug and party Doug. And it's even then comes down to the kind of like the, the not so much lies, but the mistruths that you tell. Like I always like to think of this example was when I'd come into work on a Monday and I'd been out on a massive, you know, four day bender the, on the weekend sort of thing. And the manager or, or manager would come, Oh, how's your, how's your weekend? Oh yeah, pretty good. Pretty mm. quiet. I wouldn't go into any of the, you know, the stuff that I actually did, but you know, it's just these no, little right. things that like stack up. Over, yeah. It's mm. these little things that stack up over time that, and then it becomes very hard for me anyway, to kind of like, Oh, which person am I here? Who am I trying to be right now? So I but think- it's, it's sort of a mechanism of the brain. Like I agree with you on the social side of things, that it is a social function, allowing you to fit in in different environments and so on. But the more extreme version of it is literally a protection of the core self. Yeah. And, and we do in, we know we have layers of the brain. We know we have a lizard brain, the amygdala. Mm-hmm. You know, we know we have our conscious brain, the frontal lobe, which is where we feel like we live. You know, we're kind of sitting in there and we can observe all our other functions from there you know and that's where the self kind of comes from for Mm. most people i think i mean there might be some people who live in the lizard brain as well i'm not sure but yeah it's like a mental projection of who we are rather than who we actually are and that's that is the essence of what we do with yoga and meditation is breaking down that mental projection not saying see there's always that misinterpretation that the mind is bad that the mind is evil Mm. but it's not that at all it's just about breaking down or, or being aware that that is that aspect but where is like the truth behind like what things actually are not what does your mind tell you because your mind you can make your mind do anything mm. you know and if you tell yourself something for a long enough period of time you'll believe it but whether that's necessarily the truth or not so i think this one aspect of actually understanding everything that's going up there and, and breaking it down that's how we get to the true nature and true understanding of, of who we are mm. yeah. do you think the goal is really just to understand yourself or to understand everybody around you, well, the world around you? Well, what, I, what truth is more important? Well, I believe that you won't understand anything else until you do understand yourself. So, oh, that's, very so, true. so that's the way that I see it. It's it, We can't really actually tend, because anytime we're going to ever sort of analyze anything that's happening with anybody else, it'll only be through our own frame of reference. Yeah. So I think like developing the true understanding of who an individual is, that just means that you understand like everybody else is going through that same experience, but in with their own relative inputs and interpretations. So mm. that's the way I look at things now is like whatever I learn, understand for myself, that's what I understand for myself through my experiences. And I can't necessarily go and tell anybody that that's the way for them or, you know what I mean, what I believe they should believe. But by the same token, you have to, if you're going to be like a 
yoga practitioner, a, a guru, if you will. I, I know you don't like that word. Don't like that word. <laughs> but, but if you are, if you're going to be that, doesn't that intrinsically somehow um, involve telling people how they are? I mean, I know you're sort of assisting people on their own discovery, mm. but to a certain extent, you have to impose. So I try to remove myself from that as much as possible. And mm. when I do teach, I, I really do try to teach from the point of like, I am just showing you something that I've done for myself, mm. I'm demonstrating it to you and you guys do it and you have your own experience with it. I, I never try to promise anything out of it. Mm. Um, I always just say like, I, I did this for myself. You guys do it for yourself. And if it doesn't work, don't come back. Yeah. You know, that's the way I, I, I don't want to sell anybody this idea of, yeah, this is going to, fix you the same way that it fixed me because spiritual it, awakening because i don't believe in that um yeah well, i think the idea of there being an end goal to conscious development is fallacious because it should just be an ongoing process 100 percent. and as you said before i think you said you know there was a point in your life where you felt like you knew everything and then mm. something happened that said no you don't i think yeah, that's a dangerous idea, right? Because that stops you learning if you believe you know everything already. It definitely happened to me a, a few times in this process, actually, since I kind of went through this, This, um, you know, I, don't, I hate that term, spiritual awakening as well. Well, that's why I use it in a sort of derisive yeah, manner. Right? Just, it, yeah, that sort of stuff. Again, it's just modern sort of pseudoscience. It's just gibberish. Yeah, it, I don't it's white think, noise. Yeah, so I've, in this process of me developing a better understanding of myself, I've definitely hit those points where I'm, I've had this ideology in my head of like, that's it. This is the answer that I've been looking for. And, you know, everything's rosy. I'm not going to have any more problems in life. Mm. Yeah, you're right. Very, very dangerous because then when shit does hit the fan again, it's, it's, it's uh, quite disheartening. Oh, I thought I knew everything. I thought, yeah. I'd, I thought I'd fix this. I thought I'd done this. I thought I'd done that. And it almost feels like taking, you know, taken a step or two forward and then taken 10 back mm. um so i've learned enough now to know that not to let those ideas run my mind that you know this is it this is the answer um the more i tell myself that i don't know um the more it leads me to you know learn more like what you're saying you, you, mm. why would you want to shut yourself off to learning and um you know the world's such a vast experience there's so much to learn Absolutely. Uh, i think it's always great to to you know, be open and, and want to experience and learn more. I hundred percent agree with that. I wanted to talk a little bit about limitations because I, um, I was introduced many years ago now, I guess, but something that was kind of formative to me was being introduced to the idea of, uh, self-limiting beliefs. And it's kind of what's led to this idea of story. The beliefs are the story that you tell yourself. So, um, a lot of people, I think, have self-limiting beliefs. They say, oh, I could never be a marathon runner, and they don't try, so they're not. It's a self-limiting belief. You probably could if you actually got out and you know, put on some running shoes and, and did it, right? And that's kind of your message is anybody can do this, essentially, right? I don't. I not don't. necessarily that specific thing, but everybody has a, a, a untapped potential. Untapped potential, yes. Can anybody do anything? No. I, I think that idea that we get sold that this this thing you can be anything that you want, I think that that's a bit dangerous. Um, well, it depends. If they want to be Superman, they're going to have a yeah, long way okay. ahead of them. So, <laughs> so yeah. one yeah, that that's a thing. Like, mm. pe yes, pe it's amazing what human beings can achieve when they put their minds to when they stay mm. focused on something. Um, you see a lot of high like high profile sports stars um, that will get up and go, you know, just stick to your dream and it'll eventually happen. But you know, there's there's a scale. 
right? Like, so not everybody's going to be the best Formula One driver in the world. Not everybody's going to be the best tennis player. And well, if every human on the planet pursued that one goal of being a Formula One driver, that person would still be a winner. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I think there's a, it's a bit of a misconception that you can be or achieve anything you want. But I think what people want to achieve in their life is relative to their experience. Sure. So it's more for, from what I've learned is, you know, like what, what realistically is going to make you feel fulfilled in life and how do you maintain focus to, to stay um, moving towards like a goal or achieving what you feel like your purpose is. Yeah. And I think that's the hardest thing. One is to identify the purpose mm. and then two, to, to, to actually live the purpose and, and live to leave a legacy of, of, of that purpose of find, you know, of leaving why you're here. Um, and I think it's become even harder nowadays because there's so much information flying around, you know, every time we jump on social media or turn the TV on, you know, there's a new fad or there's a new this, and, you know, we can also create those ideas of seeing, you know, people going on these awesome travel destinations or doing these amazing things and thinking, oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. So there's all the minds always kind of going here, there and everywhere. So it becomes very hard to focus yeah. and go, okay, I've got. 40 years left in my life or whatever i'm going to dedicate those 40 years to to sticking to this purpose mm. i think we've forgotten that fundamentally as as human beings like the internet yeah um, playing a big part and this is why you're getting a lot of people like high rates of suicide now because people are going unfulfilled or, or going or, or sort of getting through life without feeling like they have purpose and without purpose where's that drive going to come from to you know want to push and be something that you believe that you can be yeah definitely um so I, I just to make that really i try to make that clear in my in my book it's not i wouldn't sit there and go and tell everybody oh take up marathon running it's great <laughs> um because i don't believe that because not everybody's in a position to go out for a run mm -hmm. um my my key message in in terms of if i want to tell anybody or, or deliver a message to any anybody is is try and be healthy um is 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 to me is the most important thing because without health um life's not a great experience if being like really because i've been sick you know i've been mm. on that death's door type thing and going through physical suffering and just being of poor health it sucks so yeah. you know and that leads just feeling bad leads to to me anyway bad thoughts and then that leads to that bad projection of life mm. um so i think key thing is like be healthy and then like once things are in balance and things are, are working internally, then we can just point our energy somewhere and it can be towards great things. And that's where I talk about unlocking human potential. So mm. I think there's, I think they're just like, if we look at like smartphones and computers nowadays, a lot of people have computers and smartphones that they use what 5% of the processing power in them. Possibly same sort of thing with, with human beings. I think there's so much potential energy yeah um that human beings carry around that we waste so do why why do you think that is do you think getting a little bit conspiratorial but mm. do you think that there is some concerted force that is trying to ensure human beings don't reach their potential i don't i don't think that there's like one sort of i think everything not not not, not like one yeah not like, not, not like the illuminati yeah. or something like that but but that that we've created a structure in society, um, you know, capitalism being a part of it, but social media and, you know, the things that you criticize uh, briefly in your book, yep. um, that those structural structures, the, the structures that we've created actually 
somehow suppress human endeavor to an extent. Yeah, they, they definitely do. Um, I think there's a reason for that as well, because in the sort of consumer society that we live, on, live in, um, it's not natural. So like a lot of the stuff that we've created in the modern world, it's removed us further away from nature. Mm. So the further that we remove anything from nature, the more toxic it becomes. So we just become like these toxic beings. We're not healthy. We're not um, living in a way that's sustainable. Um, and I think that that creates like a lot of depression. And then that creates like a lot of need. Like there's always a desire, well, my life would be better if I had this. Like, you know, we look out and we see these people with wealth and all this sort of stuff. And we think that that's the only way to sort of like living. Which is a, what society tells us our entire For sure, lives. for sure. So, yeah. And it's very easy to, to believe that. And mm. there is some truth to it because it's, it's hard to get through this life without a certain level of wealth. And well, that's, that's something that struck me about your book that at, at no point, oh, it, you talk about being low on funds at times, but at no point are, do you seem to be restricted in what you do by having to earn a living, like in the sense that, uh, you know, you can you can just take three years off. Well, I can't do that. I don't know how you how the hell you did that. I don't know what your salary was, but um, I've got an okay salary, and I I just can't do that. I can't even take a week off yeah, most of the time. So I was in a pretty fortunate position when I got sick. I I, I had been the whole time I was away. I was um, saving my my right. my um, goal when I was away was to earn enough money to come back and buy a house outright, and then get oh, into okay. property. I wanted to get into property development when I got back and just have my one house and then from there use the equity and, and get into that's how I was planning on making a living. So I was working really hard to save all that money. Mm. And I was very like, that was my, I was determined to do that. And then when I got sick, I, I just had that change of perspective. Well, you know, I could have, I could literally could have died and I would have had all this money in the bank and, and what would have been good for. So I kind of went on that complete opposite. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to spend it. And I, and I went mm. pretty wild and Yes, still to this day, I, I haven't worked a nine to five job mm. in, in nearly five years now. Okay. And that money is run very thin. So I've invested everything into like every last cent that I had into getting the book done. And now I'm actually at that point where I'm living with my mum mm -hmm. and I wouldn't be able to support myself actually mm. um, at the moment. But again, I did it for a reason that I thought that was the best thing for me to do and and mm. i wanted to help people and, and all those sort of things or at least share my story and um yeah but i again it's all circumstantial right like if i if i hadn't have been in that position where i had that money i would have just gone back and and got a job well that's why i think in, in a lot of ways people have self-limiting beliefs but they also have physical restrictions over what they can do 100%, and 100%. they are dealt out by society we, we're born into it we're born on this concrete slab with no access to grow our own food, feed ourselves, do anything for ourselves, yeah. really, and, it's, and no skills, and it's really sad. Yeah, and, and it's kind of depressing. And yeah. it's, it is, and 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 that that is a truth. That's that's where I say we can't we can't create these ideologies of like, oh, if you just give up your job and go live off the land, everything's going to be fine because that's not the way that it is. Mm. And again, I would never. I tried not to be encouraged. Like, I, you know, I left my job because I was in a position where I could, um, and I wouldn't sit there and if and and try and tell anybody to leave their job or leave their family because that's not often the best thing to do mm. um again it's it's about understanding reality and and you look at your like anybody's got to look at the situation that they're in and you know analyze what they can and can't do and it's more to me it's more about like looking at it and going okay where am i at right now and where do i want to be and realistically how, how long is it going to take to get there and what are the steps that i'm going to have to take in order to get from where I am to where I want to be. And, and again, 
what's realistic. What about contributing to societal change though? So internal growth is one thing and you can have your own goals for wealth, buying a house, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But what about contributing to the overall conversation of society? And, you know, we talked about sort of, I think we both sound like we disapprove a little bit of the current state of society. So we've got to have a think about what is it that we want it to be if we if we were to change it? And there's two things you talked about losing touch with nature. We could go back to nature, live in the jungle. But I think uh, depending on where you live and how scarce resources are, you can end up just living at a survival level when you do that as well, yep. where where you, you can't find food and all that kind of stuff. So we've got this technology now. It's like it's almost like all of civilization is just one big R and D exercise. And you get to a point you've created technology. And the technology can either make the rich people richer, which is what it generally tends to do, or people can kind of pull it back and reapportion that technology in a direction that actually improves society. And I've seen visions of a society where everybody's free of work, everything's automated, we're growing food in these large hydroponic towers, um, and society's all organized around you know, production of food and necessities. And I just wonder what it would take to get to the point where we're building just one of those cities. This, yeah, so yeah. I think that's it's a really good point because we need to go back to that kind of model where it's around agriculture, but in a kind of modern way. Mm. So if we create all this technology that basically makes a lot of the human jobs that we have at the moment redundant, which it will, so mm. a lot of like analytical and data input sort of jobs will be replaced by AI and machines. Oh, we're dinosaurs already. Yeah, that, and that yeah. was already happening when I was at the bank. I was literally putting in server infrastructure that was going to replace people's jobs. Yeah. So well, I do a lot of that as well. I put yeah. in software that replaces people a lot. Yeah. So that that's definitely happening. This is why we need to we we need to realize that that is going to happen, and this is where it comes more back to that experience of uh, you know understanding internally. And when you ask what we can do about uh, things from uh, on a personal level to help society. I think it's make ourselves the best that we can be. Mm. So, and again, there's no model for that. There's no way of saying this is how one any one person should be because we're all so different. But I get asked this question a lot about um, people asking me what they should do for other people. Mm. This is in my workshops and stuff like that. I, I always get it asked a lot, like, "Oh, I've got this friend who's got this problem. Like, what should I do to?" to help them and i'm like well nothing you you can't do anything to help anybody else until they come and ask for help you can and, be available yeah. and and that's the point and, and but then when they do come and ask for help you got to make sure that you're the best version of yourself to be able sure. to help somebody in the best way that you can help so i always but that doesn't address the structure so the concern that i have is if all i do is sit on my well the couch probably isn't the best place to do this but sit on my couch meditate and become the best person I can be in my head. I actually haven't done anything. Oh no, no, I don't mean all. I don't mean mentally conceptualize something. I mean mm. we've still got to go out and do work. That's right. And then we, if we, if we're passionate about bringing change to to society, uh, we we still have to get out and do things. And th mm. and again, there's no right or wrong. Mm. It's not a concept of like a right or wrong aspect of like what's the right thing to go out and do. Like if you truly believe in like what you're going to, to do is going to help the you know bring betterment to society then you should really stick to that and work at that and a problem that i see with with that kind of concept nowadays is a lot of people have good intention but it never goes further than like a social media thing mm. do you know what i mean so you oh. see all these people posting these great ideas and 
all this sort of like you know in abundance so there's there's no shortage of ideas or there's no shortage of direction of where people want to take this life but there's a very big shortage of people actually doing work in reality and i I think that's one thing i'm I'm very unpopular on social media because people will post things about reshare this if you don't like cancer and i'm like no, I love cancer. Yeah, I want more cancer. Yeah, that I'm not going to reshare it because I think cancer, there should be more of it. It's like so insulting to me that that people put out there as if they've done something. Yeah, it's it's and it's very dangerous. And because, yeah. it, again, that's when people are identifying reality with that mental projection. So mm. in their mind, they give themselves a tick. Oh, look that's what right. I did. And then and then we all feed off each other by, you know, people sort of like um, share it and like it. So it gives that validation mm. that you're doing good, but nothing's happening. And it's a sickness in the world at the moment. It's a sickness. It's a massive sickness. It's a cancer in itself yeah. oh. on, on the fabric of society. And yeah. it's, it can't, it can't lead to anything good Yeah, and that people are resharing memes to try and make the world a better place. Life is not a it's meme. It's just redirecting energy to a completely wasteful yeah, I, I, I notion. Couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And this is, this is where, you know, you could pick on certain things in mainstream media that it's just this, I don't know, these shows like The Project, right? Mm. You just get on there and it's just story after story after story and nothing ever happens. Do you mm. know what I mean? There's never any resolution mm. to anything. So that just drives this mentality of just this feeding of like this constant struggle and, you know, everything's bad and there's no, mm. en- there's no insight. But that's what's stopping people from actually getting out and trying. And that's uh, another thing I tried to relay in my story. Like I had a lot of issues with social anxiety and all these sorts of things. And the last thing that I was ever destined to do, you know, years ago was to get up and be somebody trying to help motivate people out of funks and especially get people out, like working with people in drug rehabilitation and stuff like that. And that's where I feel that my purpose in in life is. And that's what I'm trying to set the objective of, of my life. Again, it's, this is just what feels right for me. Um, but you've transitioned in an ex, uh, to an extent from being inward focused. Now you're outward focused. You actually are actively trying to help uh, improve the world around you by helping other people improve themselves. Yeah, well, I, I just see it from my own perspective again that um, I was able to change. So I was able to change and it was far from easy. Again, mm. I'm, I don't ever try to tell anybody that this is an easy process to change. Um, but it is possible. Uh, and, you know, if we don't try, then we fail, right? We fail automatically just by not trying. Mm. So, again, I, I think the way that the world is at the moment, the the people that are struggling the most um, and the ones that we can, if we if we can help the people struggling the most and, and help them change their lives, those people will then, I think they'll be the pillars of society. So I look at it as a way of like, Okay, there's there's one guy like me that struggled with drugs, struggled with this kind of reckless way of living, never really caring for my own life, so never really caring for life around me, uh, and then going, you know, full circle with, or oh, going 180 with that, and then you know, really realizing the value of life, mm. and then going through my own process of sorting my own internal dilemmas out, and getting to that point where seeing like, well, if I can do that for myself, and I go on to help a hundred people. Um, imagine, you know, if those hundred, you know, it's that knock on effect, if they can really turn their lives around and and find the value within themselves. And they're the people like I look at, especially people with drug problems. Like I'm working with a lot of guys coming off Mm. crystal meth and all this sort of stuff. So guys that have been through a lot, it's not a great, it's not pretty. Um, but if you, if we can help those people and really help them and not Mm. the way that it's trying to be done at the moment is just crazy, but 
you you mean addressing the pain that causes them yeah, to be addicted? Yeah, and and again, not a not a one month rehabilitation no. program. These things are crazy. Like no. we're talking, you know, years of rehabilitation and really helping those people re- reconnect with their nature or their true true being within themselves and not feeling like they're worthless. Um, those people become on very valuable members of society and in a society where, you know, mental health, uh, addiction is basically what's running society at the moment. It feels like it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the pharmaceutical companies are all capitalizing on this and the government capitalizes on people's suffering. Um, we have to turn that around ourselves because it's coming back to that point we're making with social media. It's created this sense of like, well, I posted something about it. Nobody else is doing anything about it. Why is the government not doing anything mm. about this? Why is this not changing? Why is it's because th- we're not doing anything about it. The, the the bulk of the people are the ones who are, who are going to make the change. It's never going to come from the government. No, it's never. And we have it's, to. It's one of the issues we have that systemically we have a government that has a vested interest. In keeping the population, seeing them as useful, so that they'll keep paying their taxes and and buy into the system of power, yep. and in in a lot of ways they can't really exact any change. And we're us. and we're we're all getting sucked into it. We're all yeah. allowing ourselves to get drawn into it. And the sooner that we realise that those people aren't actually working for us as much as they tell us they they do, but they are giving us what we want effectively. Mm. You know, they placate. Yeah, 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 they they make us, you know, and even if you just look at the, it's always just two parties arguing the same points almost. So we know that that's well, they they usually agree on ninety percent of stuff, and exactly. then they have they they big Small up the things. points of diversion. Yeah, Small things. So this, we got to realize that 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 system's flawed, mm. um, and you're never going to be able to get rid of the people in power. So mm. the only way to change it is is to at at our, at our own level. Like where are we directing what we're doing? Because mm. if we do, if we as the bulk of people direct everything in a different direction, everything around it will have to change. That's the way I see it, and that's what I, I agree. Yeah, that's what I try to do is just like I don't let those barriers like try and stop me because I look out and sometimes still feel like oh well what hopes do we have? You know I see mm. things on social media or whatever it's st- certain statistics around something and it just goes sometimes like oh doesn't feel like I'm making progress or we're making progress. But then mm. I just got to realize that change, anything to do with change from, and again, from my own, it takes time. Yeah. So we have to look at it and go, where are we now? And as a society or even as small collective groups of individuals, like where are we now and where do we want to be? Mm. And then stay focused and work towards that. And everybody's going to have to bring something different, you know, like everybody, everybody yeah. will have their own little part to play. But they've got to be doing something. So, you know, I, I say to people uh, a lot of things that you can do, but like as an example, just stop drinking Coca-Cola. It'll do nothing else your whole life. If a million people did that, what do you know? Coca-Cola might go out of business. The power structures would change. Things would change. Yeah, or e- even even beyond that. Yeah, it's it, that's the way I look at it as well. Is if we just stop buying the things or feeding the things, that they mm. will they'll either die out or they'll themselves change. So there's no reason that Coca-Cola can't become a, a decent organization. No. Um, if we if, we need to demand. Yeah, it. yeah. Mm. If we demand that they become something else, there's no reason that Coca-Cola couldn't start selling fresh pressed juice. You know, and they'd have all the infrastructure in place, like you know, all these sorts of things. I, I look at, I look at for that sort of stuff that gives me hope, like companies like Tesla. Mm. You know what I mean? You look at it and go, well, it's still a car company, and they're still going to make money and do this and that, and the other. But it's a little bit better for. They still fired Elon Musk for taking a puff of marijuana, though. Well, how, well, how lame was that? 
<laughs> Unbelievable. Course, uh, mate, I was watching that. Oh, um, the board takes this very seriously. Like, <laughs> and and doing something that's like wasn't even illegal in California. It's yeah. Yeah, exactly. Perception stuff. Oh, it's, it's crazy. insane. I mean, that's the sort of stuff that doesn't give me too much hope. But but they're board members. They're elites already. You know, they're the people who are trying to maintain a position as opposed exactly. to exactly. And, and I think I think what we've got to sort of stay focused in on now. We are in a tr- tra- transitional part of humanity. So mm. we've we've changed. Technology has made the way that the human is change, and mm. we're just going through a phase where we're a little bit unsettled, and we got to get a grips on it because like what you were saying before, technology could be our demise or it could be the greatest thing to ever happen That's to right. humanity. And we're on that cusp. We're on that trend. We, and, and the only thing that's going to make it go one way or the other is how we as humans and as the bulk of humans deal with it. Mm. And again, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent, you know, it can, I think a very small amount of people can impact a, a very big amount of change. So well, um, scientifically, there's been studies that show 10 to 12% of a population adopt an idea, mm-hmm. believe it for real, the rest of the population will follow. So it's actually quite a small amount that we need to have good ideas and yeah. good intentions. Yeah. And I'll also look at things like you, you have, you've had in times where singular people have changed the whole That's right. fate yeah. of, a, of a country. Yeah. But know? they probably convinced a hundred people yeah. and each one of those hundred people convinced 10, yep. 15 other people yes. and it just grows like that. So I would say like, there's there's a lot of things that the, the, the yogis and things look at and, and they always say even if you had 1% of a population practicing meditation, that would be enough. Mm. So we don't have to look at that. I think that's another thing that people get a little bit trapped on is they think everybody has to be a certain way. But uh, we just have to change things little by little and mm. and I think you'll see big changes. And And I'm quite hopeful that we will get there. Well, I think the only thing that I'm happy to take on faith in life is trust that human beings will find a way one way or another. Yeah. I you think- know, as, as, just as a basic rule of nature that eventually nature finds a balance and we're definitely out of balance. Oh. So it's going to swing back the other way. Yeah. And if it doesn't, maybe we lose a bit of our population or something. Yeah. It's not going to be the end of the planet, though, you know. No, no, or, or the end of life itself, or life itself, or human. Um, there'll be a few left. Yeah, you yeah, and yeah. I should survive. I, yeah, yeah. I can survive in the wild probably for a good three weeks without even eating because I've got good stores. So, yeah. Then, then again, you're probably stronger than me. You'd probably kill me and eat me. I don't know. Anyway, um, I'm we'll ve- see. I'm vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You are. Well, I don't know if you could afford to be in the post-apocalyptic would, world. Yeah. I think all of your um. Uh, philosophical ideas I, I'm 100% on, on board with um, and I, I think it's awesome what you're doing. But I think there's also a step at the end of the spiritual journey which is to share your story and you're not at the end of your spiritual journey I'm sure so hopefully there's a few more books <laughs> in the works but I think that bit often gets neglected and even derided to some extent. You know, a kid says they want to be an author when they're older and the parents say, yeah, but you better get a computer science degree because that's really like, that'll be your salary. You know, you can write your little books, but, you know, and that was exactly what happened to me when I was a kid. It was like, yeah, but don't go to school for it because it's a waste of time. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's not a waste of time. And uh, in some ways, I think in this future that we've been talking about, there may be a direction it goes where creativity, the ability to tell story and not just write down a chronological story but also express yourself through art and through uh, less literal forms of communication. 
where they'll become more valued than the ability to sweep a floor or uh, um, calculate a spreadsheet or, you know, those types of things. And so they should, we're creative beings. It seems to me that this is an opportunity, and I've seen this in a YouTube video, this doesn't come from me, but it's an opportunity for a new renaissance. And there's a whole TED talk about that. If, if you're interested, I can send it to you, um, where he says, basically, if we master the technology, get free from work, what's next? It's mm. thought, it's understanding, it's art. It's these things that we aspire to that everybody wants to do. And we can't because of all the constraints of society. Mm. So, all right, well, I better wind it up. We've, it's a fairly, uh, fairly long one. What's next for you? And tell us about uh, how to get the book, uh, websites, your your training services, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yep. So um, what's next for me is now I'm just trying to get my story out into the world. So I self-published and I'm um, mm -hmm. doing all the marketing myself. So this, this year is focused on trying to get the, the book into more people's hands. And that's what I'm working on now. So web development and marketing strategies. Okay. Uh, so if anybody's keen to buy the book, it's kundaliniRunning.com. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, just find me there. Any social medias is just uh, Kundalini Running. It's on Amazon and uh, it's those on, types of things? Yeah, it's on iBooks and iTunes okay. on Amazon, but the physical copies of the book is only available in Australia through my website. Okay, cool. So, we're, yeah, that was the self. I've literally got like a thousand books sitting in my garage. Right, okay. Is so, that how it works? Yeah, yeah. That's so, the warehouse, your mum's garage. Basically, yeah. Cool. Yeah, so um, that's just a trial run and then if it takes a bit of, um, moment it gets a bit of momentum um then i'll look at being able to maybe other distribution channels and stuff like that but for, for now it's still a pretty limited type thing and i wanted it to be that way because i didn't want to just make the everyday run of a meal churn it out from china I, you know i believe in my story and um all that sort of stuff so i wanted it to be good product and good quality i got it printed in australia and all that sort of stuff so it's awesome yeah it means a lot to me and um yeah i just wanted to give people as best of a experience with it as possible and yeah now hopefully just get it out in small hands and see where that takes me hopefully get to do more stuff like this i really like sitting down and, and chatting with people and, and and doing podcasts and, and that well, sort of stuff from my perspective this has been an awesome conversation i love yeah, talking it's... to introspective people like you and uh yeah thanks very much for being on the show it's yeah. been a real pleasure thanks for giving me your time and yeah cheers cheers thank you